I couldn't help but to think about Jesus never changing. And I was thinking about Peter denying Jesus. Peter, who said he loved Jesus, who said he would do anything, that he would die for him. And when the moment counted, he literally denied Jesus. The very last statement that Peter made for Jesus before he died was a denial. And I imagine what those three days were like for Peter as Jesus is dead. And he's like, what have I done? What have I done? There's no hope for me. God's done with me. He's cast me away. He's done with me. And then Jesus rises from the dead and he goes and he, he tells the disciples and he gets Peter and he reaffirms his love for Peter and he shows him, yes, I am the God who gives unlimited grace and mercy and steadfast love to those who do not deserve it. And so as I'm singing, I'm thinking about God, I'm thankful that you've never changed that even though 2,000 years have gone by and there's more and more denial, more and more sins, more and more uh, things that I would get frustrated with, I know you've never changed. Maybe you're here this morning and you are grieved by the self-deprecation within your heart as you're very much acquainted with your own failures and your own sins. And there's some type of voice inside of you that's telling you that the love of God is somehow on the other side of the fence from you. It's not true. Jesus never changes. He doesn't change with you. He doesn't change with time. And he doesn't change with circumstances. His grace and his love and his mercy is always upon you. This is the good news. This is wonderful. And this is why we can come here today, even with our imperfections, and lift our hands and thank God for all that he's done. So let's pray and thank him for what he's done for us. Father, we're able to come boldly to your throne. We don't have to fear that you'll reject us. Come into your presence and ask for the help that we need, the grace that we need in our time of great need. Father, I know any given time there is different degrees of need and different degrees of hurt and pain and joy and praise and rejoicing and confusion and God every time we get together we represent the multiplicity of those things so God be with us all this morning open our hearts and minds to your word that bring life that bring godliness that bring clarity and give us the the knowledge through the inspiration and illumination of the spirit that will awaken our hearts and our eyes to greater truths. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. What well, is good, good, good is always to see brothers and sisters. Glad that you're here with us. Glad if you're watching. We're going to take a, a different route today. We've been in Genesis, and if you're unaware, we're going to be in a different a different place today. Total, uh, uh, what's the word? Rabbit trail, but it's purposeful. So we're about to go as Paul, uh, uh, not Paul, uh, Todd said, we're about to go into the Passion Week. We're about to go into Palm Sunday, into Easter, and we're going to be focusing our minds and our hearts there. But we have this one Sunday today where we wanted to take a break. We're giving you an update on the church, we're giving you kind of a, a family talk afterwards, and we want today to kind of represent the, the leadership's oversight and the leadership's heart of what we feel like we need to be talking about, and today the message represents a lot of that. So let me give you some context. We look out over the last year, and we see a crazy time, something that we're probably all here tired of hearing people talk about. We just know that last year has been crazy. We know that it continues to, to be crazy and it continues to be uncertain in life. But as we look over and we assess from the perspective of, of leaders, overseers, pastors, we assess what's going on in the world and particularly what's going on in the church. There's something interesting that is happening or appears to be happening. And it's what I would call... Uh, the trenches are sucking people down into its bottomless pit and people are pressing hard into their trenches, jumping into them and shooting people on the other side of the battlefield. Now, if you know anything about trench warfare and world, war, war, world, world war one, I'll tell you what, I'll get through it. In a world war one, 
the warfare was a little different. You know, there's different degrees of warfare. There's guerrilla warfare. There's the revolutionary, war, revolutionary warfare where you stand on the different side of the battlefields. But in World War I, uh, trench warfare was kind of the, the, the mode. And they would dig these deep trenches and they would stay in the safety of these trenches. But the trenches were pretty nasty. People would get something called trench foot after staying down and their feet would begin to rot inside of their boots. And being in the trenches... If you read about it, it's nothing that you desire to want to do. But in a time of warfare, that was what was happening. And you would, you'd try to get any, any opportunity you could to, to take out the enemy from your tr- trench while they were in their trenches. And don't you dare go on the outside and stand above the trenches because then you're, man, then you're right in the crosshairs. You're going to get shot. You're going to get taken down. Could I say this? As Christians, we cannot be in the trenches it's comfortable in the trenches because in the crosshairs off our back or it's comfortable in the trenches because that's where we like to be. And we would rather, we'd rather look at the other people in other trenches as the enemy and try to take them out any way that we could. But as Christians, we must climb out of the trenches and be in the uncomfortable position of being amidst the open ground caught in the crossfire of everyone in the trenches. But we cannot jump in the trenches ourselves and the last year has caused a lot of that. Uh, we're going to be in Romans 14 today. Romans 14, we're going to take a detour and we're going to look at this passage, the whole passage, and we got to work through it because I want us to look at the whole passage, every single verse. I'm going to have things on the screen and we're going to work through it. But what we're going to be talking about today is what I believe is one of the greatest threats to the church. What do I mean? There are plenty of threats to the church. You know, oh, how about a false doctrine? That's a threat to the church. Yes, indeed, false doctrine is a threat to the church, and we have to make sure that doctrine does not go awry and there's not false prophets and false teaching going around. Yes, but we're not talking about that today. Uh, uh, how about persecution? Persecution's a threat to the church, but not in a way that we think. Persecution actually causes the church to grow, ironically, but, but the world and the evil one within the world trying to attack us and do with us what he wants to, yes, that's a threat to the church, but we're not talking necessarily about that today. Today, we're going to be talking about opinions. Opinions being one of the greatest threats to the work of God. Let me put, put it this way. Opinions can be one of two things, and you'll see it on the screen. Opinions can be either personal convictions, or they can be public constrictions. As we're going to see in Romans 14, public constrictions come from a place of people within the church who have great hearts, who mean well, who serve the Lord well and want to follow God. But when we begin to want everyone else to follow the Lord in the way that we follow him and we turn our personal convictions into public constrictions, it begins to, as Romans 14 is going to show us, destroy the work of God. And this is what I have seen, and I think we could all admit, we've seen this, we felt this even happen in our own heart, where we just kind of kind of pulled into a trench, a personal conviction, or a side, and we get there with other people, especially within the church, and we get around, and we begin to talk about and mock and look at the other people in the other trenches as if somehow they're the problem, and take them out. And we kind of, just the, the circumstances in life around us has just done that. And we as the church, we're responsible. We, we've got to always call us out of these trenches, call us back to unity and see that within the body of Christ is the only place opposing opinions can dwell together in great unity, but only within the church, but only after we understand what God is calling us to. Today, I want everyone to feel defended by the word. So the word is going to defend every single one of us today and support you and affirm you. But for every single one of us today, this word is going to challenge us, convict us as it should, because we must get this right. And I would say this, I I bet I could 100% guarantee that none of us wants to destroy the work of God, do we? None of us. No one here would say, hey, sign me up for that. I want to destroy what God is doing But we could inadvertently do that. We can do that with great intentions as well. And so as we take this time to go through Romans 14, 
know that this is a time that as we look through his leadership, we think, you know what, this would be a great, healthy refocus for Summit and for the church for us to check our hearts, to see where we are, to make sure we haven't somehow inadvertently, maybe without paying attention, been pulled into some trench on some side of the battlefield, shooting at our brothers and sisters on the other side. So here's the big question. How can I avoid being the one who destroys the work of God? And we're all going to wrestle with that in Romans chapter 14. And I want to give you some things. How can I avoid being the one who destroys the work of God? Look at verse one of Romans 14. The first thing is this. I must welcome the weak. Paul says this. As for the one who is weak in faith... Welcome him. As for the one who is weak in the faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. If you look really quick in Romans 15, verse 1, he says this. He sandwiches this passage. He says, We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. What in the world is Paul talking about here? Paul is talking to this church in Rome and he's talking about how, how life should look and laying down their lives, giving their life over to God and living for one another, living for God and for one another. And in this passage, he's going to introduce, introduce two types of people, the weak and the strong, the weak in faith and the strong in faith. Now, what are we supposed to do with this? Are we supposed to try to identify who's weak and who's strong? I would say look at it like this. We need to see ourselves as strong and weak in certain areas. How do you know that someone is weak in the faith in an area? Let me give you a quick or something very simple. Someone who is weak in the faith, according to this passage, is someone who believes that something's wrong that is not. Someone who believes that something is wrong that is not. Now, someone strong in the faith is able to, through faith and trust in God, see like, hey, there is no moral morality or any type of thing wrapped up in this thing that says whether good or bad, it's neutral. Oh, someone's a little bit more mature in the faith and they have that understanding. But the goal here, the goal here of this passage is not to make the weak become strong at all. That's what we're going to see. So this is not a message that's going to say, if you're weak in the faith and you have areas of your life, little things in life where you think are wrong when they're not, Jasper's not going to get up here and tell you, you need to change your thinking. That's part of the issue. Romans 14 is going to defend your personal conviction and tell you to press and double down onto that in honor to the Lord. Now, what are some of the opinions that go on. Here's what we needed to find this because one thing that I wrestled with, we talked, we talked as leaders about struggling with this passage is the temptation to take this chapter and run with it and misapply it. Oh man. Oh man, how easy that is to do. And so I'm just trusting God. Let me, I'll preach and I trust the spirit to work in hearts, but we must, we must look in our own heart and not allow this passage or take this passage and run with it in a crazy way. Because the opinions that we're talking about are not things that the scripture says are absolutely right and wrong. The scripture is very clear on things that are right, very clear on things that are wrong. But there's this whole litany of gray that the scripture doesn't speak into. Jasper, are you going to tell us what some of those things are? Indeed. Let's, Let's make all of us uncomfortable, right? The passage is going to introduce several things. The passage introduces food. Food isn't evil in and of itself. It's clean. There's nothing wrong with food. So people who eat vegetables or just meat or not meat, or that's not wrong. Observing days of the week or days of the year, one day greater than the next. Someone says that they don't do this. Observe this day. Some say they observe all types of days. Whether or not you have church on Saturday or Sunday. Nothing wrong either way. Food, drink, alcohol. Alcohol is not wrong. It's not bad. It's not wrong to drink alcohol. But as a passage is going to show us, it is for the person who thinks it's wrong. How about how we dress, right? How we dress. How about whether you work on Sunday or not? How about, how about uh, uh, what you wear to church? How about what music you listen to? Or what music you listen to from a certain artist? Or what music the church plays? Or 
whatever it is, there's a whole litany of opinions. How about, here's a relevant one. How about what you do with masks? Wear a mask, don't wear a mask. You wear a mask because that's a sign of loving your neighbor. No, you don't wear a mask because that's like borderline taking the mark of the beast, right? Where are you at? Either way, varying different opinions on what you do with masks or not. This is what we're always up against. The church was up against this. Things that someone would take and say, you're not a Christian unless you blank. Or how could, a, how could you call yourself a Christian and blank? What's a popular one? How can you call yourself a Christian and vote that way? Ooh, now we've just applied salvation to an area that the Bible never does. The Bible says you are saved on faith alone, by the grace of God, by faith in Jesus Christ. What you do with Jesus depends on whether or not you're saved, not how you vote. Big surprise, big shock. How could they? But what does this do in the church when we start to become acquainted with the opinions of our brothers and sisters? When we start to become aware of the different ways that our brothers and sisters decide to live. Ways that are contrary, deep within our own heart. You shouldn't do that or you should do this. And we come to grips with it. What's the temptation? The temptation is to make clicks, stick over here with our only group, think like us, and then point the fingers at others, right? Trenches. This past year, I mean, think about it. Think about all the topics that have gone on, whether it's from voting, whether it's issues, whether it's masks, whatever it may be. Can you think of a time where you've gotten together with people who think the way you think even within the church, and complained and mocked about people on the other side of the battlefield as if they're the problem. I think all of us could sit down and share multiple times, right? This is a great threat to the church. It is a great threat because it divides what Jesus is saying should be unified. Not agreeing on everything, but unified. And unity is even more powerful when we're able to be one and think differently on things. It's even more beautiful And this passage is going to defend every single one of us. Take the judgment off of our backs. The first thing that must happen if we want to avoid being the person. I'm going to start moving through this really quick. If we want to avoid being the person who destroys the work of God, we must welcome the weak. I don't think any of so. So I'm assuming we're all taking the the personal self-reflection that we're the strong person. We may, maybe we know where we're weak in certain areas. Maybe we know where we're strong. We have that awareness, but we need to strive to do what this passage says. So we, we welcome, we accept them. He says there, as for the one who is weak in the faith, welcome him. But then he says this, but not to quarrel over opinions. The second thing we, we must do is I must not quarrel over opinions. Look what he says here. We must not quarrel over opinions. One person believes they may eat anything while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls and he will be upheld. For the Lord is able to make him stand. Verse five, he introduces the other person. One person esteems one day as better than the other, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor to the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor to the Lord since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor to the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be both Lord, be Lord both of the dead and of the living. I must not quarrel over opinions. Now you see how I've added to my, even my outline here, quotations, and I'm using the I, because I want us to, to take the application and the position of exhortation that Paul's giving each individual applying this to their own life. I must welcome the weak and I must not quarrel over opinions. I must not turn my personal conviction into a public constriction. Look what happens. The weak person tends to judge the strong. 
Judge meaning taking the place of literally a judge. Condemn. I am, I am hitting the gavel. You are wrong and you are guilty and you are condemned based off what you are doing. The strong tends to despise the weak. Right? I see someone over here who's holding themselves to something having this personal conviction that I know is not wrong, and, they're, and I'm going to call them a legalist, and I'm going I'm to despise them, like, how can, you know, and then put myself in the position where I'm like, yeah, I, yeah, I'm definitely, I know I got the gospel down better than they do. Right? That's what despising looks like. Two things are happening, and those things happen when we begin to quarrel, right? Facebook's a great place. Facebook has provided the best place to quarrel. It provides the best opportunity for us to share these things and flaunt these things And then when we come together, we feel that weird, like, because of what happened online. Social media has just amplified this to the 10th degree because we see it constantly, constantly seeing the convictions that are opposed to us. Again, I'm talking about the gray areas of life, the gray areas of scripture where there are no commands. They're neutral, not excusing sin. Now I want to answer this. Why? Why should I welcome the weak and why should I not quarrel over? Look at this. Because, and I'm going to give you a quick list. I want you to see this through verses 2 through 12. I want you to see the reasoning that Paul is giving. That is phenomenal. This is beautiful. Very convicting. I had to stop and cry when I read this because I felt so convicted and guilty my whole life of where I have missed this. Verses 2 through 12, I must welcome the weak and I must not quarrel over opinions because, first one this in verses 2 through 3, God welcomes that person even when I don't. And regardless if I do, God has already welcomed that person. So imagine someone comes in the church who has a different opinion than you that you just, in your heart, you're just like, how can they even be a Christian God is saying in verse Romans 14, I've already welcomed this person. Look what he says here. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person believes they can eat only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. God welcomes them regardless if I do. Am I going to say my standard is higher than God? I'm going to sit over here and not welcome this person, not embrace them, accept them as a brother or sister because they think differently or have a conviction different than mine. In this particular issue, time, one of the things was meat that had been sacrificed to idols. Imagine you go out to the marketplace. In the marketplace, you realize all this meat that you're going to buy, every single one of those had been tainted by being sacrificed to a pagan god. Right? And so here's, hey, hey, look at, Look at Jerry over here. Look what he's doing. He's buying, buying food in the marketplace. You see him over there? No, no, Jerry, the one we go to church with, the one who calls himself a Christian, he, he's buying meat that has been sacrificed to an idol. You bleed out? Yeah. This is exactly what was going on. But Jerry's over here mature and strong in the faith because he realizes there's no gods. Meat sacrificed to an idol, that doesn't do anything. It doesn't change the molecular structure of the meat. It doesn't somehow make meat unclean. Because after all, Jesus made, pronounced everything to be clean and that nothing that goes inside me defiles me. It's only that what comes out of me defiles me. And he's absolutely right. But the moment that Jerry looks over at the people who are judging them, he says, weak Christians, they have no idea what they're talking about. He's immediately defiled himself because what's come out of him is despising his brother. And what's come out of these guys over here is judging the brother. And God's saying, both of you could be right, 100%, but you're both wrong in how you're interacting and looking in your heart at one another. God welcomes them regardless if I do. Verse four, God is their master, not me. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? This person, whoever you have in your mind that you really struggle with is not your servant and you are not their master. It is before his own master that he stands or falls. Look at this, the last half of that verse God will uphold them, not me. It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and look at this, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Look, 
Do you see how wonderful this is, the work of God in each and every single one of our lives? Man, we're so, we're so blind sometimes and we struggle and we fumble our ways through life and sometimes we feel so unworthy and God, if he's your master, he's going to make you stand. He's going to uphold you. He's going to let you be able to pass through the judgment when you stand before him in judgment and you won't fall or shrink away. He will uphold you because you are his and you are precious to him and everything in life that is serious to you personally that you seriously give to him, that you seriously try to follow out of the passion and the care of your heart to be obedient to him is special to him. But Paul is saying to us who might be tempted to judge or despise to say, hey, listen, they're not our servant. We're not their master. God doesn't need our help. God's doing his own work in their life just like he is in ours. God is their master, not me. And God will uphold them, not me. Look at this next one. God, this one is the one where I spent a lot, this is where my brain, I just, this was awesome for me. You learn something new every day, but this one I struggled with at first. God doesn't want them to change, even if I do. God does not want them to change, even if I do. Look at verse five. One person esteems one day as better than another while another esteems all days of like. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. You tell me, which one's actually right? Is there one day throughout the year that's better than another? Or are all days the same? They're all just days. Which one's actually true? Well, it depends on what you believe. According to scripture, all days are alike. There is not one day better than another. But if you in your mind believe that there is one day that's more special than another, you might technically be wrong, but do you know what God wants? God wants you to be fully convinced in your own mind and not feel like you have to change that. Not put your conscience up against the strain of where you're now confused about what's right and wrong. And God is telling us who may be strong in that area not to put the constraint or despise and put that person's conscience up against the chest and cause confusion. We can't do it. Be fully convinced in your own mind. Can you believe this? Amongst us, there are a varying difference of opinions that we all live our life according to, and they, they literally shape who we are and what we do, and they feel so intrinsically to the core of who we are and our relationship with God, and God saying, yes, be fully convinced, serve me in that way. It's okay if they don't at all. Or it's okay if they do. Where do we all need to do the spiritual surgery in our heart to love one another and allow one another to be fully convinced in their own mind and dwell together in unity with our differences? Again, I'm not talking about the areas of scripture that are clear right and wrong. We don't make excuses for those, but there are plenty of areas we have differing opinions on. We are not to quarrel over them. God doesn't want them to change. Even if I do look at this next one, God is honored by the heart, not the opinion. This is the heart of the matter. Verse six, the one who observes the day observes it in honor to the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor to the Lord since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks. God is honored by the heart and not the opinion. Do you see that? See, we get stuck. This is, this is the reason I love this. Our, the name of our church is because we're constantly trying to remind ourselves of, even in the name of our church, to put our eyes on the things that matter, to look back over the surface level things and put them where they belong and then look up to the heavenly heart of Jesus. And God's saying, man, I look down and I see everyone in this church, man, they just love me. And they, that thing that they're doing, yeah, it, it's not technically wrong, but man, they are, they are staying away from that in honor to me. And I'm not going to do anything to mess with that. That pleases me. Don't you get in the way of that and mess that up. Or that person through their faith, because they believe in me, they've come to a place in their maturity where they realize that there is nothing taboo about that. And in faith and in, and in, and in their knowledge of the grace and knowledge of Jesus, they honor me that way by enjoying that and giving gratitude for it, whatever it may be. 
This is an area of life where we do have to make an effort to think like God. This is tough. All of us, we can all think of certain areas where this is tough. I mean, I got to just let that person. Yeah. Because God is honored by the heart, not the opinion. Look at verse seven. God purchased them. I didn't. God died for them, sent his only son. Jesus died for them. I didn't. Verse seven, for none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be, that he might be Lord, both of the dead and of the living. God is the one who's purchased every single one of us. And we get our commendation and our affirmation from him. And he wants to do with our individual lives what he wants to do with. And he wants that individual life, though, to be connected to all these other individual lives. And he wants us to show the beauty of peace on earth that the world will never be able to attain apart from the gospel. We show it here, right here and now, that differences of opinions can exist because Jesus is our singular focus. Everywhere else, it will divide because they don't know Jesus. Jesus has purchased us. And then look at this final one. God is their judge as well as mine. Verse 10 through 12, why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. This is one of those things that is, it's fearful. It's a terrifying thing to think about standing before the one who made the very universe as we know it the one who has limitless power and knowledge and we stand before him and I, and I imagine the moment we stand before him, we're just flooded with that sense of shame of how we've lived our lives and secrets in those areas that no one else knew, but we know he knows and now we're standing before him and terrifying. But this should encourage us because what did he just say before this? God is your master and he's able to make you stand. He will uphold you. Because you believe in Jesus and you've placed your faith in Jesus, you will pass through the judgment of God. But the way you live your life matters. We're all going to give an account. And the irony is this. We'll sit back and judge one another because we think each other's wrong. And we might be motivated by the fact we don't want you to stand in judgment for God. But God is saying in Romans 14, yeah, but you're making yourself stand in judgment when you begin to judge people and get in between my work and them. The only judgment that's coming down is on the despising and the judgment for the areas of life that are gray and nuanced and neither right nor wrong. All of us should live our life wanting to honor God and whatsoever you do, doing all the glory to God. But we must all realize I'm going to stand before God. I don't stand before people. What God has told me to do here on planet earth and what he's convicted me of to honor him in, I want to do it to him with my whole heart, be fully convinced in my heart. And yes, I might get judged or I might be despised, but I need to remember who I answer to, to God, no one else. Everyone else on planet is a temporary authority. Even your pastors here, we're not the head of the church. Jesus is. We have a responsibility to promote and exhort what the head of the church does. Jesus Christ, the great high priest, is the one who lays out how we live life and how we conduct ourselves. And we all answer to him personally, individually. God is their judge as well as mine. We're going to take a little shift here. The passage then starts to get at the the heart of the matter a little more. So he set up what it is I want you to do. Welcome the brother. Welcome the weak. Everyone welcome one another. And don't quarrel over opinions. Why? Because, because I'm doing this work. I'm over them when you are. Don't, don't take my place. You focus on something else. And that's what he's going to start drawing our mind to here. He's going to take a little different shift. And he's going to really appeal to our heart and exhort us personally. So here's the next thing that we must do if we want to avoid being the person 
that would destroy the work of God. I must decide right now that I'm never going to destroy the work of God. I don't want to be that person. Look at verse 13. He says, therefore, I've said all these things, therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer. You see, the implication is, is it was going on and it always is trying to resurface and we must always remind ourselves to no longer do this any longer, pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather, what should we do? Stop doing this and start doing what? He says this, rather decide. Mental, there's this mental work that needs to happen in all of us right now, this mental uh, determination. I'm going to make this decision and I'm not going to be the one that destroys the work of God with my personal convictions, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. Paul says, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in and of itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love, but what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. You hear that? The potential, what is at stake with us not getting this? What is at stake for us not making the effort to want to make sure we're not this type of person? What's at stake is a work that God is doing for someone that he, he, he slaughtered his only son for, for that person. God is doing a work in that person's life. And when we get in between them and God, we begin to destroy what it is God's doing in their life. Same thing happens for us when we have this personal conviction and devotion to the Lord and someone gets in between of it. It, it begins to start doing something. It hinders, as he said, it hinders a brother or sister. I know in these moments as the spirit works, when we hear his word, like maybe some of us are already beginning to feel sick to our stomach as we think about where we've done this. Listen, there's grace and mercy to it. If you didn't know it before, now you're aware of it. Just repent of it and move on with joy in your life and determine to never be that person. Ask God to help you. This is for us all. Here's a question we can ask ourselves. Am I... Hindering someone's personal relationship with the Lord. Right? So we contemplate on that. Is there any area of my life where I might be getting in the way of someone's personal relationship? The work that God's trying to do in this person. Is there any situation or person coming to mind as you ask that? If so, make it right between the Lord. And maybe even if that person, if there's been something public there, some type of strain. Now notice here, he does reveal the weak and the stronger brother. Paul says, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in and of itself. You see, there's the truth. That's what's actually true. But then he says this, but he says, if your brother is, but, but he says it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. It's the conscience. It's the heart of like God cares so much about us staying true to our conscience in these gray, nuanced areas that our conscience can literally make something that's clean, unclean. That's the determining factor. Our conscience cannot make things clean. Don't get that wrong. Our conscience cannot make things clean, but our conscience can make things unclean that are clean spiritually. In this context, if your brother is grieved by what you eat, You're no longer walking in love. The motivation here is the great commandment from from Jesus. Love the Lord your God and then your neighbor as yourself. There's this motivation of love where my liberty and my freedom gets put on the shelf when it comes to you. And if I see that you're weak in the faith in this area, that you're calling something wrong that's actually right, I have one of two things I can do. I actually have one of three things I can do. No, let's take it. One of two things I can do. Some of you are going to come and be like, what is that third thing? Let's just focus on the, the two things. One of two things I can do. I can determine in my heart, you know what? I'm not going to get in between the Lord and that. I can see that they think that's wrong. I know that's not wrong based off the scriptures. 
And you know what? I'm going to make sure with that person, I'm not going to put myself in a situation where they see me enjoying X, Y, Z or doing X, Y, Z or not doing X, Y, Z for their sake, because I don't want to grieve them by that and cause this confusion where I can help it. The other thing we can do is to begin to attack out of great motivations, thinking we're helping that person come to come to great faith and maturity and help them understand why they're so wrong about this conviction that they have. Paul's saying, don't do it. Nuh-uh. No, that's not. Help. The goal of this passage is not to make weak people strong. It's not wrong to be weak. This is what's interesting. This is what blew my mind as I was studying this because that was part of me that was prepared to tell us all at the end of it. Now listen, at the end of this, there are people who are weak in the faith and I've defended that, but we need to make sure we call the weak to come the strong. So not, I repent of that. That is not what this passage is saying. It is, it is defending the weak. We may have personal convictions that last till the day we die. All the while, we're growing in grace in the knowledge of Jesus. There may be things that we have in our heart that are personal conviction that we never come to this place where our conscience is like, that's okay. And we're weak in the faith in that area. The goal is not to change that. It's to be fully convinced and to let others be fully convinced in their own mind and dwell together in it. The exhortation is not weak become strong. The Bible does talk about growth and we should all be growing, but there are all areas of our life where I believe we will be weak in the faith until the day we die, we'll carry those things and we must protect it in honor to the Lord. And if God chooses to in his own time, grow us in that to where we're no longer grieved and we see things more clearly then wonderful. Now we become strong in that area. Am I hindering someone's personal relationship with the Lord? Look at this next one and we must move on. I must pursue the heart of the kingdom. Verse 17 through 21. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another person stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. Why? Because you are pursuing the heart of the kingdom. And the heart of the kingdom is peace and mutual upbuilding. I want to see my brothers and sisters grow. And I want to make sure that my life, my words, and my influence are only helping that not hindering it. And one way I know I can hinder that is if I take my opinions and my personal convictions and I begin to start making them public constrictions. I can be sure that I'm somehow destroying the work of God. I don't want to be that person. But our heart has to be in tune with the heartbeat of the kingdom, and we must be seeking those things as the priority, especially when it comes to the one another's of the gospel. I must pursue the heart of the kingdom. Here's a question we can ask ourselves. I want you to listen to it. Am I motivated by actually helping someone grow in their relationship in the Lord? Notice what I didn't say. I didn't say, am I motivated by helping someone grow in the Lord? I said, am I motivated by actually helping someone grow in the Lord? Two different hearts. You see, one actually cares about what is actually effective in helping someone grow. The other one only cares about feeling good at the end of the day that you did something. Because I'll tell you this, we don't quarrel over opinions because we're, we think we're evil, do we? We quarrel over opinions because we actually think we're helping. But have we take the time to actually ask ourselves, am I actually helping? God, I want to pursue what actually helps, what actually brings peace, what actually builds people up. That's what I want. That's a different heart than I just want to help. And then we're aloof and then surprised when there's a fire and we've caused damage. And we're like, I was just helping. My intentions were great. We don't want to have just a good intention. We want our intentions to be linked with effectiveness. Do you see that? So then let us pursue peace, things that make for peace and for mutual upbuilding. When we went through Ephesians, we called it Built Together because it was this book written to Gentiles and Jews who, couldn't, who, were, who, were the, who judged each other constantly. Man, they were, they were literally racist towards one another, hated one another. And through Jesus, 
They're being brought near altogether, but they're being brought near with all their differences of opinions and lifestyles and looks and everything. And they are having to learn that they're one in Christ. And I don't see anywhere in scripture where we're told, hey, change, keep adapting and change until you all think the same way. It's never the case. We don't see that. We just have the formula of how to live with our differences in the light of the gospel. And it's beautiful. Verse 22, I must not flaunt my faith if I want to avoid being the person that destroys the work of God. The faith that you have, look at this, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. Do not flaunt your faith. I must not flaunt my faith, meaning you have this area of personal conviction in your life that for you is so true. It's something that you would be sinning if you went against it. But we need to care more about those who think differently and maybe who are weaker than us in these areas. And we must make the effort to say, you know what? I'm going to keep this, this thing that I enjoy between the Lord and myself. And I'm deciding now to never put a stumbling block in the way of someone else. This idea of flaunting is like, yeah, what areas of our life have we been flaunting those things to show people just how close to God we are and how close they aren't? Is the Lord convicting you of anything? And then look at verse 23. I must protect the conscience. Notice that I didn't say my conscience. I said the conscience because that includes both mine and my brothers and my sisters. I must protect the conscience. Now, if you take Disney and you let Jiminy Cricket teach you, your conscience is going to lead you in all types of areas. Always let your conscience be your guide, clause, colon, semicolon, if you have the rest of the scripture in your heart. If you don't, don't let your conscience be your guide. If you have a foundation of truth, you're seeking God through his word and you're seeking to obey the law of Christ and you, you're seeking to know the heart of God, you want to please him, and you're letting the word be the thing that speaks into your life and guides you, then yes, let your conscience be your guide in those areas that you know are neither right nor wrong, but are gray, and you're trying to figure out what's right and wrong. The whole litany of things. So let me ask you some questions to ask yourself. Am I enjoying my faith with God in such a way that others' faith crumbles? Or how about this? Am I being true to my conscience in my own convictions? And the other one is this. Am I guarding the consciences of, consciences of my brothers and sisters around me? He says here in verse 23, but whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats. You see why this is so serious? Speaking, now he's speaking back to the strong. He he spoke at the strong at the beginning, then he included the weak and the strong. Now he's speaking to the strong again. Hey, listen, you have an area of your life where you have great faith and you know it's not wrong. But if you in some way convince or get someone to do the thing that you know by faith isn't wrong, and they do that in this context, eat food that they believe is wrong, they, they doubt whether or not they're doing the right thing. He says here, but whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, meaning it's sin. They are wrong because the eating is not from faith for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. I don't care what it is. If it's in that gray area, you have to be able with a clean conscience to, to, to thank God for it or to do it unto God and honor and stick to that conviction and not force other people to do it. Apply it anywhere where the spirit's working in your heart right now. So here's what I want to do. I want to read verses one through seven of chapter 15, and then we're going to pray. I want us to pay attention to what Paul says now after verse chapter 14. This is what he says in chapter 15. He says this, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up for Christ did not please himself. But as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. 
For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, God, if I've misspoken in any way, I pray you'd forgive me. And Father, if any one of us in any way are taking this passage and using it as an excuse for sin, excuse for beliefs, excuse for things that you tell us in your word are absolutely not right, that you'd convict us of that. But God, I pray that you'd help all of us learn how to give you the thing you want, which is this harmony with one voice together, not in our cliques, not with bitter judging hearts, not despising those who may still be on a weak journey, but God, allowing all of these things to be among us in great peace and patience, seeking to see our brothers and sisters grow in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus. God, in walking hand in hand after death on that bridge to the light of your glory to be forever with you hand in hand as we look at each other with smiles on our face knowing that no virus, no political motive, no agenda, nothing that the enemy's gonna do in this world is gonna come in between this. And God, it's happening so much all over the world right now. I pray for Summit Church that you would keep us, you would keep us unto you with one another. God, you have the power to do all things. We ask that you do that here and keep it. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand up together. Trust you are blessed by that. I trust the spirits at work in you, working through these things. This process of sanctification, the big word, that we use to mean becoming more and more like Jesus, pressing in deeper to holiness, being set apart as God's own people. This is a lifelong process, isn't it? And the desire is to please God and be the kind of church that Jesus died for. So let's go out today rejoicing in that, all right? 